We've been studying through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, and um, we, re- we recently just launched into the second half of the book, or part two of the book of Mark. Um, and just by way of review, it's helpful to remember that the first part of the book of Mark is largely controlled by the, the identity of Jesus. Who is he? Um, We've been kind of pretending that we've been flies on the wall, watching Jesus, listening to him speak, trying to find out who he is and look at him with with a, a fresh way of hearing and a fresh way of looking. And we've been pondering along with the crowds that have been there. You can just imagine, here's this rabbi, this itinerant speaker, this itinerant rabbi and itinerant healer going through and healing people, helping people, loving people, serving people, speaking with such authority and preaching with such power. And you can just imagine and you can hear it, kind of the buzzing in the crowd or this kind of palpable wondering in the air, who is he? What is his identity? Who is Jesus? That feel, that kind of atmosphere is what's been driving the first half of the book. And we've You know that. If you've been with us through this time, we've been every time trying to put on our imagination, trying to um, see through the eyes of the gospel of Mark, really through Peter's eyes, as Jesus has been going from, from event to event, from theme to theme, from sermon to sermon, and we've been trying to figure out what, what is he like? Who is he? And that has been crescendoing, it's been building, it's been um, kind of, the pressure's been building on that until last week... Finally, his identity was revealed. And along with his identity being revealed, his mission was revealed at the same time. And here's what I want to tell you today, that his identity, who Jesus identifies himself to be, and his mission go hand in hand. That's why we've got to get the first part of the book right. We've got to understand who Jesus is if we're truly going to understand his mission Um, and what he's come to do. Now, the shocking thing was that his identity and mission, as we saw last week, didn't seem to match. That was the shocking thing. To the point where, you know, the the famous story, Peter um, pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him, um, which is laughable, but it was a strong rebuke. Peter was serious. He was really thinking Jesus needs a pep talk. He needs to be rebuked at this point. Um, um, and like we said, the word in the Greek for rebuke is the same word that Jesus would use when he would cast out evil spirits. So it was a strong rebuke to Jesus. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk about Jesus' preferred identity. I want to, I think it's important. I was thinking, we were going to, I was going to, I was planning on launching into the, transfi- the Mount of Transfiguration, but we're going to do that next week because I think it's imperative that we stop pause and think through together Jesus's most preferred way of identifying himself and that is with the term the son of man if you know one of the most interesting things about Jesus if you're going through all the gospels one of the most perhaps maybe to you even frustrating things is that he seems to shy away from the title messiah he doesn't he kind of um accepts the title in a very coy kind of a way he accepts it but not outright he doesn't say yes i am the messiah in explicit terms he receives it like in our passage last week he says yes peter but then he goes on to identify himself in a different way he says and the son of man and this 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 term jesus has no problem um identifying himself with that throughout all of all of the gospels this is jesus's brand this is how he wants you to think of him when you think of jesus he wants the term son of man to be in your mind not that messiah is not important but more than that primary than that the first thing that he wants to be in your mind clearly is son of man because he uses it over and over and over and over and over and over again so um we need, to, we need to understand. Now, well, first, let me remind you, why, do, why would he shy away from the term Messiah? Well, like we talked about last week, Messiah had, Messiah had some very strong cultural connotations at this point in the first century. 
For the Jewish person living in Palestine in the first century, the term Messiah was a very loaded term that was akin to a military coup. It was, it was, a, it was a term, a title of victory and triumph through military power and through political power. The idea of the Messiah was that he was the anointed descendant of the, of the great King David who would, who would march back in, into Jerusalem and take the throne, reclaim the throne of his father David and rule the world from Israel. That was the idea. And at this point, Israel was oppressed again by another nation state, the Roman Empire, that was oppressing them, and they were thinking, man, we could use a Messiah right about now. We could use someone that could pay back these Romans and these dirty Gentiles for all the abuse and all the, and all the uh, terror that they've put on our nation over and over again. So Jesus shied away from that because that is not exactly, the, that wasn't connected to his mission the way he wanted it to be understood. So he chooses the term, the Son of Man, which is, by the way, no less provocative. In fact, I, we're, I hope we can learn today, and I hope you guys participate with me, that was, I march you through kind of a study of the term son of man. You're going to see that this is a loaded, loaded, loaded term. <laughs> it means a lot. In fact, I think the way, we'll, the way I want you to think of it and the way I'll, I'll pitch it to you is that it's a layered term. It has layers of meaning, and we'll go through them. Okay, layers of meaning. Now, the reason this is so important, again, is because like the gospel's outline, like the, this gospel's outline, part one, Jesus' identity, part two is Jesus' mission. We've been harping on his identity for the past, I don't know how long we've been in Mark. Over and over, I mean, uh, I don't know, months we've been in Mark at this point. Now we're going to take on a different flavor. We're going to start harping on his mission but we've got to set forth in stone what he wants you to know about his identity. Jesus uses this title, the Son of Man, as a brand, as a starting point in which he will describe his mission and pack his mission with huge amounts of meaning. So, the more I thought about it, the more I thought we should pause this Sunday and get this right. Um, so, let's start at the beginning. Together, we're, we're going to start to see how this phrase just begins to become more complex. And hopefully, as we go through our study, it's going to become more of a sharp point in your mind. Um, and then we'll start to consider at the end today why Jesus uses this phrase for himself and what significance this phrase has for his mission, what he means to us, okay? So we're going to talk about the Son of Man. And a good place to start, um, in fact, I'll put it up there for you, is Numbers 23, this is a great place to start. It's up on the screen for you, so you don't have to uh, type or flip or whatever you want to do. Um, Numbers 23, 19, this is where we see it. It says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. So the first basic but very important point, beginning point, is that the term son of man simply refers to being a human being. That's what it, that's what, that's what it means. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should nahab, change his mind. You know, we change our mind. In fact, I, I was planning on doing the, the transfiguration, chapter 9, and I, I nahabbed. I changed my mind. I decided, nope, we're going to do this instead, right? In other words, this is, this is saying changing, is, changing your mind is a very human trait. It's what humans do. Right? So in the, at the very beginning point, layer number one, it's simple but extremely important that we start with that Jesus or that the Son of Man means human. It means that he's a human. This is making the observation that, that one trait of being human means to change, means to go with the flow. So, very simple. Now let's go to Ezekiel chapter 2. Let's build on this. Ezekiel chapter 2, this is an incredible passage, verses 1 through 3, it says, And he said to me, here's our phrase, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me and he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels. What do you see here? 
you guys. What do we see about the Son of Man? What are his actions? Son of Man, stand on your feet. What are some important phrases here? Anybody see anything in there? Weakness. Weakness, where do you see it? Okay, he needs help. He needs empowering to do what? To be sent. Okay, to be sent. This is Ezekiel speaking. Ezekiel saying that God, that, that uh, Yahweh says to him, Son of man, stand on your feet. So this is Yahweh. Stand on your feet. I will, so here are the phrases that stick out to me. I will speak with you. The Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And then he said, Son of man, I'm sending you to the people of Israel. So here we're going to add a layer to our human uh, definition. It's important, but we're going to add a layer to it. We're going to add, this is a prophetic human. There's a prophetic flavor God speaks, empowers, sends. That's, a, that's a, the, a, a description of a prophet. That's what Ezekiel's going to end up doing. Ezekiel's going to be sent to the nation of Israel to convict them of their sin and to give them hope and to speak of a future hope from God. He's going to talk. In fact, he's going to, Ezekiel will bounce between the, the past the present, and the future. He kind of toggles between throughout the book. He'll talk about their past. This is where you came from. So a prophet's not just saying things in the future. It's a, a prophet reminds you, this is what's on your life. This is the blessing that's on your life. This is your purpose. Remember Genesis chapter 12. Remember Genesis chapter 15. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 28. Israel, this is what you're made to do, present, but you're not doing it. In fact, you're going after other gods. There's abominations in your temple. There's sin going on in you. He, and God's going to purge you of that sin and send hope for you in the future. So there's a prophetic. So God addresses him. The Spirit fills him. He sends him to Israel to explain Yahweh to them or to make clear to the people the character of God. That's basically Ezekiel. If you keep reading, Ezekiel is sent to Israel to make clear to the people of Israel the character of Yahweh. That's the idea. So, there's not only a human element, but a prophetic one as well. Let's go to Psalm 8. We're going to have some fun with this one. You, you guys will like this. Psalm 8. We'll run into this phrase again. Let's add another layer. He says, in Psalm 8, he says, O Lord... O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your, he your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or there's our phrase, the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with, the glory, with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. So first of all, before I set you loose here, I want to, give you, I want to remind you that the Bible, the Old Testament, and especially this passage, is riddled with, um, well, the Bible is ancient Eastern literature and let me add something to that. The Bible is ancient Eastern meditation literature. What does that mean? Smudges all over my glasses. What does that mean, that the Bible is a meditation literature? And it means the aim of the Bible is that you would meditate on it for your entire life. Okay? So what does that mean about you reading the Bible? It means you're going to have to read it many times. The Bible is written assuming that you will read it many times, that you will think about it, that you will think about it more, that you'll apply it, and that you'll think about it more. And it's written this way. It's written in what scholars call a progressive recursive manner. It has a, re a progressive recursive style, meaning that it has a snowball effect. It will tell you a story, and then the Bible will move on to a different story, and then tell the same story but in a different way and add detail to it 
and then go on to another story and then later tell the same story as the same theme um, or the same, I should say, the same um, morals of the story or principle of the story but maybe surrounded with different details. So when you're reading the Bible throughout, there will be things that will remind you, the more you read it, you'll go, that reminds me of this other story. So, let me put it in modern terms. The Bible, and especially Psalm 8, is filled with hyperlinks. Think of a computer. It's filled with hyperlinks that both point backwards to something earlier or some things earlier and also point forwards to something to come. Not just Psalm 8. The entire Old Testament, the entire Bible is, is this way. This is certainly how Jesus and Paul and these people thought when they read the Bible. The Bible was meant to be like, some people have said, it's not a perfect analogy, but it works, like a cow which, you know, coughs up its cud and chews on something again and then swallows it and coughs it up and chews on it again. Except in the Bible, it's supposed to add momentum. You're actually supposed to add substance the Bible is something that it's written for us to talk about and for it never to get old for your entire lifetime. And it's important that we approach the Bible knowing that about it. Otherwise, we're going to read it like another book. Like, you know, you read it once, you put it down, you're like, sweet, that was good, moving on. The Bible would say, no, no, you're not going to get even 10% out of me that was designed by God for you get, to get out of me unless you read, think, reread, talk. The Bible, was meant, it, the Bible was written in a communal culture, not an individualistic culture, so it was meant to be talked about in community, discussed, built upon other people's perspectives. It is the most fascinating ancient work in the ancient world that we have bar none. You don't have to be a Christian to, to claim that. Secular scholars will tell you there is no other more complex, recursive, interwoven text that we have in the ancient world but the Old Testament. So, with that in mind, let's read Psalm 8 again. Throw it up there again. Think. Pay attention to what, what you might think about or what this might remind you of. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babes. Go to, go to verse 3, Isaiah. Look at this, you guys. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. What does this remind you of? The moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Where's the first place this, this, this is mentioned? We've got man, so we've got heavens, work of God's fingers, moon, stars, mankind. This is Genesis 1 language. This is Genesis 1 language. Um, well, go, go to the next verse. This will really cue you off. What, uh, can you go to the next one? Uh, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory, talking about the creation of man. You have given him, that word there, dominion. That's Genesis 1.28. Given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. This is, high, this is a recursive, this is coming back up again. You'll see it over and you'll see it in Exodus. You'll see it here in the Psalms. It's coming back up again. Genesis 1 kind of language all over the place. <clears throat> now, here's what I want to do that's going to be kind of fun. I don't, I don't think I put this up there. Did I put up there the, subs, the, subscript, the superscription in the beginning of the Psalm? I don't think I did. Can you throw up the first, the first verse, Isaiah? Psalm 8, 1. Oh, I didn't. I'm sorry. Okay, well, if you look in your Bible, I should have copied and pasted this. If you look in your Bible, you're going to see a superscription in the beginning of this psalm that's going to say, quote, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. And when you're reading that, you go, what in the world is that all about, right? Who is this, who is this choir master? And it's important because about half of the psalms have this, this, tight, this beginning part. It's to the, to, this is to the choir master, to the choir master, written at the top of them. Well, the first thing you'll start to learn about this when you even just start to scratch the surface about choir master, you'll learn that, uh, that the word choir in choir master or choir director, director is in, should be in italics. What that means is, in your Bible, it should show italics. It means that's your translation's way of telling you that the word choir is not there in the original. 
So we can get rid of that word altogether. So now what we have, it just says, to the master or to the director. That's what's in the original. And if you look up that word in the um, Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, hallow is what we call it, you'll find some really interesting words that could, it could be translated. For example, this psalm could be read for the fighter. Interesting. Um, another word for this word is translated mighty one, for the mighty one, for the triumphant. Here's one, for the preeminent one. This is where you start thinking, it's quite a, it's quite a choir master. Who is this? <laughs> Who is this guy? For, uh, for the enduring one is another one, the enduring one. And even more bizarre than all of this, when you start to scratch into this, when you look at the Septuagint, which is the, um, it's the Old Testament translated into Greek, this would be the Bible that Jesus would have referred to. This is the Bible that Paul would have been reading. It, it was the Old Testament translated into Greek. The term is translated there, not for the choir director at all, but telos is what, what the Greek phrase is, which means for the end times. I know, that's what I did. What Paul just did, huh? That's, what, that's exactly what I did. I went, what is that even all about? For the end times. Now, that's interesting. So this isn't for the choir master at all. This is, for, this is written for the end times? So because of all this, and by the way, there is no shortage of controversy over this chapter. I mean, it's, it's, there's... Wars are being fought over the translation of this, of this chapter. But be, because of all this, a lot of very prominent scholars think that this is not a reference to a choir director at all, but they think it's a reference to a messianic figure, a messiah, an enduring one, a preeminent one. And if you were to read Psalm 8, I want you to put it back up there again, Isaiah. We're going to read it with that in mind. If you read it with a messianic term in mind, and you can make that decision if you want to buy into that or not. I'll try to add some weight to it in a second. But for now, if you read Psalm 8 through the lens uh, that this is written to a Messiah, it puts a whole nother twist of things. All of a sudden, go down to verse 4. All of a sudden, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? All of a sudden, son of man in verse 4 is not just a hyperlink pointing back to Genesis chapter 1. It is. But it's also a hyperlink pointing forward to a Messiah that is to come. Let me see if I can add some weight, some weight to this a little bit. Turn to Hebrews chapter... Well, I think I put it up there. Hebrews chapter 2. Look at this. The writer to the Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, and this is exactly what he does. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 says, For it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, if you didn't know he was talking about Jesus, you'd say, yeah, it was to humans. Remember Genesis 1 language. Who did he put the creation into dominion under? It was humans. So you're going to expect him to say, it was humans if it's Genesis chapter 1, but look, he goes on. It, is test, it has been testified somewhere, now he's going to quote Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the, with the glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now he's going to translate what this means for you. The writer of the Hebrews says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Talk, namely, he says, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, this is speaking to the incarnation of Christ. Made lower than the angels is speaking, it hyperlinks back to Genesis. That's true. It's talking about human beings. Remember, that's Numbers 23. The Son of Man's a human. But it's also hyperlinking forward to the greater than Adam, the second Adam, the Messiah, his incarnation, Jesus, Christmas time. That's what he's talking about. And he says it straight out, namely Jesus. Intrigued? Interested? Yes. So is the Son of Man just a term of his little lower than the angel's state? The time? At the time that he was, yes, when he was incarnated, he was made 
a little lower than the angels, meaning he was meant, he was made, he was put here on this earth. Yeah. Or you can read it, or you can read, okay, so let me just nerd out on you for a second. Um, Because either of these work and you don't lose any ground. The term in Psalm 8, um, lower than angels, some of your translations say heavenly beings. The Greek, or excuse me, the Hebrew word is simply Elohim. Made lower the angels, made, it means Elohim. Um, it, which is used in the Old Testament to mean angels or heavenly beings at times. But primarily the word Elohim is used to refer to, say it louder. Your, your mask's on it. God, yes, God. Typically it's God. So a lot of people translate that uh, human beings were made not lower than the angels, because that doesn't even make sense if you think about it. We're, because angels weren't made in the image of God at all. There's no reference to angels being made in the image of God. It makes way more sense to say that humans are made a little lower than, than, than God himself. Because we were the ones, in context, we're the ones that God put dominion under us. So either way, this is referring to um, Jesus being made, being incarnated into, a, into human, human form, being a little lower than God, in a sense. He's equal with God, but in a sense, his incarnation coming as human, he's made like us, made like you and me. So, this is nerdy, isn't it? This is, okay, you guys, this is why I do this. This is why, stuff like this is why I decided, I think I'm called to do this, because I'm really into it. I really like it. So, um, Let's go through our layers so far. So here are our layers of meaning for the Son of Man so far. We've got human, Numbers 23. We've got a prophetic element, right? Ezekiel chapter 2. Now we see this messianic element in Psalm 8. So are you seeing at this point, are you now starting to see how this is a very loaded term? It means a lot. It's actually a nerve bundle for a lot of different themes that all end up in one name. Son of man means prophetic human Messiah. Okay, let's look at one more. Let's look at Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Here's where things get kind of intense. Daniel says, as I looked, this is his famous vision in chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was was fiery flames. The Ancient of Days is referring to who? It's Yahweh. It's 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 an obvious uh, uh, marker of Yahweh. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousand served him. And ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. So everyone's worshiping him and rightfully so. The court sat in judgment. The books were opened. So there's a judgment. We're now in a heavenly courtroom scene. Where, where Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, is about to judge and eradicate all evil off the face of the planet. Verse 11, I looked, then, be, then because of the sound of the great words and the horn that was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to, to be burned with fire. As the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives um, were prolonged for a season and a time. Here we go. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. What, have we been, what has Jesus been saying this whole time, first half of the book? The kingdom of God is at hand. And all peoples and nations and language should serve him. His dominion, there's our word, there's a Genesis word. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. You see how themes are starting to meld together here? Man, dominion, stewardship, the man, the ideal image of God, the ideal man is coming up here. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So first of all, the Ancient of Days is Yahweh. And then down in verse 13, this Son of Man, which means what? In its basic form, what is, in his basic form, remember, point number one, Numbers 23, what is Daniel seeing? I'm seeing a human coming to the Ancient of Days. That's what he's saying. 
Okay? We'll start at the very beginning. Um, but this isn't just any human. Because look, it says he comes, this is verse 13, um, it says he comes with the clouds of heaven. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, if you know anything about clouds in the Old Testament, they almost never refer to clouds like here in Seattle that drop rain on the place. They refer to the, the Shekinah, the Kabod, the glory, the, very, the manifest presence of Yahweh himself. So we've got a human that doesn't start on earth and go up to the Ancient of Days. We've got a human that's coming up on the clouds to the ancient of days he's already in heaven okay he's coming with clouds to a jew oh and by the way he's given a kingdom in all people's all people's at the end it says serve him but the word there can, should serve him the word there could be translated will worship him now to any good jew who is the only person that deserves worship Someone say Yahweh. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yahweh. To a Jewish person, it is anathema. It is abomination. It is, it is tear your clothes, throw a fit if anyone gets worship except for Yahweh. And yet here, this son of man, this divine human is given this kingdom. So here we've got this layer of divinity, of deity. You've got a human. Humans are what? Imago Dei. Image of God, right? It's a beautiful term. It's an amazing term. Uh, Teselem in the Hebrew. Uh, in his likeness, Demuth in the Hebrew. Teselem, here's what it means. Here's what you are. You want to know what you are? Well, let's get into some Christian anthropology here this morning. What you and I are? We're image of God. To sell them means to carve something into like an animal or a, a statue. It's very simple. It means to carve something. And demuth means likeness. So what kings would do, you can read about this in Daniel chapter 2, before they had internet or email or live broadcast television or anything like that, kings would carve images of themselves and put that image in faraway parts of their kingdom so that anybody passing by would know, oh, this kingdom belongs to that guy. So it was simply, so the image of God is both a noun and a verb. You are the image of God, and you are here, placed here, to make visible the invisible God. You are to image the, 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 the uh, image of God. You're to image God. Isn't that amazing? Think about that for a second when, when you look in the mirror. You are image of God. You don't have the image of God. You are the image of God. And you are, so there's a structure and there's a function. Just like an eagle is structured with wings so that it can functionally fly. You are structured in the image of God so that you can function as imaging the invisible God to all parts of the world. That is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That is the purpose of mankind. That's awesome. I mean, I get, I, I've, I've taught this so many bloody times, I get chills every time I say it. It's just, you're, that means you're sacred. It's incredible. And there are so many connotations about what that means, about your body, about your mind, about all of those things, Christian ethics, everything goes into that thing. But what happened? What happened? Unfortunately, we blew it. Right? There's Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. God says, hey, you can eat everything here, but don't eat that tree because the day you eat of it, it's gonna, you're going to die. You will die. And this fallen creature... This, some spiritual creature dressed as a snake of some sort, um, but already fallen, bent on God's destruction, slithers up to Eve and he says what? Did God really say? And, he, and then he says, no, 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 no. God knows that the day you eat of it, 
he's just really insecure. The day you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll be like God. Isaiah 14 tells us that when Satan fell, that was his main sin. I want to be like God. Now he's transferring that same puke, that same crookedness right over to Eve. And then it says, when she saw that the fruit was good for eating and good to make one wise, she took it. In other words, Satan did not tempt her to trust him. Satan did not tempt her to trust God. Satan tempted her to put her trust in her own self. That is what's behind sin. Sin says, in its basic nature, I get to decide what is good, right, true, and beautiful. Not you, Yahweh. I get to make reality. Not you. And when she did that, you know what happened. Death happened. And we retained the image of God structurally. We're still made in the image of God. In fact, we know that because in uh, Genesis chapter 5, after the fall, um, we know that Seth was made, quote, in the image. And then in Genesis chapter 9, God says, don't murder people because people, even after sin, people were made in the, people are made in the image of God. James chapter 3, I think, says, with the tongue, we, we, we worship and we praise God, and with the tongue, we curse men made in the image of God. So we know that something of the image was retained, and yet we are now functionally unable to image him. And the idea is now we use, we use our structure, we use our, what we've been endowed with, our gifts, we use it to image our own glory, to image our own selves. And that is the hideousness of sin. The hideousness of sin is that we're using what God meant for his glory to something that is an affront to God. It's, it's not just doing something wrong. It's taking his goodness and inverting it into something gross. All sin. We find all that in this ancient book called the Bible. Isn't it profound? That's why I love it. <laughs> That's why I love it. So, <clears throat> then, <clears throat> then, Paul comes along and, he start, and Jesus comes along and he starts talking about the Son of Man who is the image of God par excellence, you could say. In fact, Paul will say in Colossians that we are now being conformed into the image, tselem in the Hebrew, into the el- image of our creator. And he goes on to say, who is Jesus? Paul also says in Corinthians that we, we look in a, in, a, in a glass dimly, but we are from glory to glory, we are being renewed uh, in the knowledge of the image of God, the image of Christ. So my point is, by taking this, this long detour here, <clears throat> my point is we come back to the Son of Man has wrapped up into this the idea of the perfect man. The perfect image of God. Humanity as it was supposed to be is Jesus. You understand that? Humanity the way it was supposed to be. And here's what's beautiful. So right now, this is what we call sanctification. That means the image of God in you and in me is not static, but dynamic. In other words, just like, okay, just like how Adam was made new but not finished in the garden... He was, um, the way Augustine put it, he was able not to sin, but it was still possible for him to sin. So obviously he still needed to grow and progress and, be, um, and still be sanctified to a certain extent. In the same way, when you're born again, God's spirit comes in you and puts in, you're born again, it puts in a new person, like a baby, with all this potential, new but not complete, that is growing in you, you are being conformed from glory to glory into the image of God. That's sanctification. That's what's happening in you right now. And the more we look 
uh, it's through the knowledge, Romans chapter 4 says, through the knowledge of him, we look, we learn more about him, we meditate on him, we're conformed more and more. That means there's a participation piece. We're to, you and I are to cultivate the image of God inside of us. And to the degree that you do, to the degree that I participate with that, to that degree I will begin to grow more and more into the image of Christ. <clears throat> and it will be completely fixed, <laughs> and that's not even a good word, but in heaven. And the reason that's not a good word is because fixed implies that it's going back to how it was in the garden before Adam and Eve blew it. But it's actually not. Because in heaven, we will, we will not just be able not to sin, we will not be able to sin. We will exceed the place of Adam and Eve and become more and more like Jesus where there won't be any sense or any um, possibility of rebellion after that. Hallelujah, right? Otherwise, yeah, at some point, history will not repeat itself. Woo! <clears throat> yes, that was a lot. I fire hose you. Help me. What is it that we are not able to sin and still will? Obviously, we've had free will all the way until we pass through the curtain of death or with Jesus. We get a new body, but that's the part that I just can't wrap my mind I'm so glad we won't want to sin. Why? Um, uh, briefly, I think because we will be exactly the way we were created to be what we were created to be in other words we will be finding complete utter fulfillment um so in the bible when it comes to sin it's always going to talk about replacement it's never going to talk about stop it it's going to talk about replace it so uh if i if nicole makes me an amazing meal that's my favorite meal and then i go over to your house and you're like hey i've got these crusty old mcdonald's french fries you want some I'm not going to feel the need. I'm satisfied. I just had a great meal, right? But if I'm hungry, really hungry, which is how the Bible describes the plight of the human race, one metaphor the Bible uses, we'll do a lot. We'll scrape the bottom of a trash can that, to, to eat that, see? Which is the, so that goes to the idea that Adam and Eve, though they were new, they weren't complete, they were, God was wanting to grow them towards something. They had an opportunity there with the tree to grow beyond it, to keep growing into that image, to keep imaging more and more perfectly, and they blew it. And with Jesus, he comes and he restores the image in us and continues to conform us into his image. He's doing that right now to the degree that you and I cooperate. Um, Ephesians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You were created in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 2.10. Um, you were created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. In other words, to image God to the ends of the earth, right? So we're growing in that. That will continue to manifest itself through our good works. But we, okay, so we can talk more about this later, and I love it. This is great, but... Let's go back to the Son of Man. So in, in, in Jesus, we see in this, or in this, this uh, phrase, the Son of Man, we see that he's human. But not just human, he's the ideal human. He is the way man was. He is the image of God, the Imago Dei. He is the ultimate human. He's given a kingdom People of every tribe worship him. He has everlasting dominion. So he's human. He's, but there's also in Daniel, we see this Ezekiel prophet type of element. So he's a prophet who's called, empowered, and sent in his incarnation to explain Yahweh. Right? Then we have the Messiah infused into this, into, into Psalm 8 and Hebrews chapter 2, where he's this anointed king. Right? made a little lower than the angels in his incarnation, and now we've got this divine peace as well. He's fully human, but he's fully God. He sees the Son of Man doesn't start from earth. He starts, he's in heaven, and he's presented to the Ancient of Days in this kabod, the Shekinah glory cloud. And of course, my, I won't, I'll 
resist the temptation of going to Revelation chapter 5 with you and talking about who Jesus is there, and you'll see major connectors going on there as well, but I won't. Because the final piece is the piece that Jesus adds to that outline himself in what we saw last week. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Can you put it up? Yep. Jesus said this, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, we talked about this, must suffer. Here's the mission. And here's where this phrase tended to go drastically wrong, at least in the minds of the hearers. How can this, this ideal human sent by God, okay, well, maybe I can get that because prophets suffered. Jeremiah is the suffering prophet. He was sent. Ezekiel certainly suffered there in Babylon. Certainly he had to have suffered. So maybe I can go with that. But how can this ideal human, this, this prophet, this Messiah who's coming in the, for the throne of David and have this divine peace as well, the Son of Man, how can he suffer? But Jesus insists over and over again. Look, it says he must suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plain, bluntly, plainly to them. In other words, he didn't say this in a parable. He didn't speak in riddles. He said it straight out. The Son of Man, me, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to raise again. And we see, we're going to see, that he repeats this. This wasn't like a one-timer. He kept telling them this on repeat. But the cultural... Uh, milieu that they grew up with that's just embedded in their mind of what the messiah ought to be he had to keep chipping away at that old idea of who the messiah was going to be so they didn't get it the first time around or the second time around or the third time around or maybe even until after when two disciples are walking on the road to emmaus and jesus shows up and says don't you see that this had to happen next in our next study in the transfiguration we'll see the phrase that jesus uses it again and in mark 9 he says and and as they were coming down the mountain this that's the mount of transfiguration he charged them to tell no one that the, what they had seen until the son of man there's his favorite phrase had been risen from the dead again he's telling them this all the time no secret so they kept the matter to themselves questioning that this rising from the dead what, what this rising from the dead might even mean okay so they're not getting it and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And, and he asked his own question. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? In other words, where is that written? And this is where Hebrews gets it. Hebrews 2 has the answer to that. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Again, we read this already, but it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, again, that's Genesis language. He's the ultimate man. He's un, everything's in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his, his control. At present, we do not see yet any, everything in subjection to him, but we see him for, uh, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now look, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's Colossians, <laughs> in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The only way the Son of Man can restore the Imago Dei in all mankind is through suffering. This is why you'll get in the New Testament 
the apostles, the writers of the gospels, the writers of the epistles, when they look back at an Old Testament passage, just like what we read here in Hebrews, they will translate it in light of Jesus. Has that ever boggled your mind? Have you ever wondered, how did they get that from that? Well, because Jesus told them that. Jesus told them in John chapter 5, all things in Moses. He said, you guys read, the, you guys read Moses because you're hoping in them you'll find eternal life when it's actually them that testify of me. That's John chapter 5 or 6, somewhere in there. They testify of me. On the road to Emmaus, it, when, he, when he was with those, those disciples, he sa- uh, it says he opened the scriptures to them and beginning with Moses, that's the Torah, the Pentateuch, and going through all the prophets, that's basically your Old Testament, he showed them how all of it points to him. It's all about him. That exp- and you know what we call that? In the scholarly world, we call that a hermeneutic which means a method by which you interpret ancient scripture. Hermeneutics is the science by which you interpret ancient scripture. Jesus said the science, the method I want you to use, the hermeneutic that I want you to use to look back on the Old Testament is me. That was their lens that they looked back. There's a, I've, told my students this but there's a movie that I have not encouraged them to watch nor do I encourage you to watch but there's a movie called Fight Club has anybody seen it it's a great movie actually but there's some pretty gnarly parts but the whole time I'll just I'll just can I spoil it okay let's spoil it yeah it's an old one but la- yeah last week I sent someone running for the door because I was about to spoil a good book they were right in the middle of reading um, so I can't remember the actor's name. I remember Brad Pitt, but I don't remember the other guy. Edward Norton. He meets this man who's Brad Pitt. They become fast friends. Edward Norton's kind of this rule follower. He does what he's told. He's in the grind. He's, he's kind of bitter about it. He meets Brad Pitt's character who is this um, not rule follower. He's a partier. He doesn't, nothing can contain him. He's Mr. Free Spirit. Kind of like Hartman and Shainer. Yes, yes. <laughs> like Batman and Robin. Um, and the more he gets to know this Brad Pitt's character, the more he tempts him to do things that he would never do in his own. And he start, they start getting into trouble. They start having a good time. But it's this dual thing. And one time, at one hand, he feels free and relieved to be kind of throw the fetters of rules and society off him. He's an anarchist and he's just, I'm free from all of that. On the other hand, it's very counterintuitive to who he is. At the end of the movie, you realize that Brad Pitt's character is just a figment of his imagination. He has split personality. And so it begs you to go watch the movie again, to look back at it, Knowing that, knowing the end, to look back at it, and it's like, watching, it's like watching the same yet different movie at the same time. That is what Jesus did to the Old Testament. When Jesus showed up and he said, it's actually all about me, they went, you know, their minds were just blown, and they looked back and they saw what they saw, the same it was fulfilled. The law was upheld. It's not like do, do away, but it was and about Jesus. That's what he does. That's what he's doing here with the Son of Man bit. He's those things and more. He, it's like he brings it into technicolor. All the puzzle, puzzles, the puzzle pieces fit together and you go, oh! Jesus is saying that he is human That's beautiful. I wish we could just nerd out on that for a second, but we won't. He's human, the human, called and sent by God. He's a prophet to convict Israel and the world of sin and bring repentance and hope, just like Ezekiel. So he is the ultimate human and he is the ultimate fulfillment of Ezekiel. I'm sent to convict of sin and to bring hope and repentance and to lead you on a second exodus which is one of the main messages of Ezekiel, to lead you on a second exodus out of bondage, but not out of bondage to some economic political power, but out of bondage to what's enslaving you in your heart. 
And I'm, the anoint, I'm anointed by God as the Messiah made lower than the angels in this car, incarnation that I'm in. I've, I've, incar, I've incarnated. The, 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 um, the absolute has become tangible, become a particular, to use philosophical phrases. So that, here's my mission. I'm the son of man so that I can suffer I can take the suffering of the world on myself. I can absorb it of a, through a life of suffering culminating on the cross, the worst kind of suffering. And not just physical suffering, but spiritual suffering. I will experience the ultimate exile that mankind ex- feels from God. I'll be separated from Him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'll be cast out so that you Adam's race, redeeming grace to Adam's race can be called in to his presence. And then, like in Daniel, Acts chapter 1, I will ascend in the clouds and present myself to the ancient of days. Resurrection, Matthew 26, Acts chapter 1. We saw him taken up in the clouds of heaven, the ascension to the ancient of days to Yahweh. right? Cool. Right? His identity is so important for us to understand his calling a pitch of his whole mission. The whole mission. Um, I saved this last point for the piano because there's one more piece to this. Jesus came as the Son of Man. And how is the way that he said he's going to image God? How is he the ultimate image of God? Through love. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's clear that mankind was made for three functions. Three functions. And I'll, I won't point them out to you. I'll just tell them to you. You're to image God. The question is, how, Mike? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's three ways that you and I were made to function to image God. You and I were made, number one, to be completely centered on and moving towards God. To be oriented, our entire lives, mind, body, soul, all of our beings, oriented towards God. Secondly, we are to be oriented towards our fellow neighbors, fellow humans. He made us social, community, communal creatures, loving each other and serving one another. And finally, we were made to image God by how we steward his creation. How we love the world around us. How we take care of things. And Jesus showed us the ultimate way to do all three of those things was through suffering. So here's my point. To image God in your life, you need to understand you're signing up to suffer. That means saying no to yourself so that you can center on him. It means, well, primarily it means, unlike Eve, you and I get to say, no, I'm going to let Yahweh decide what is good, right, true, and beautiful. And I'm going to put my own wisdom. I'm not going to trust myself and what I think are my proclivities. I'm going to trust in Yahweh's definition of good, right, true, and beautiful, not my own. That takes suffering. It means I'm going, to, I'm going to die. I'm going to let that desire in me die. I'm going to deny it. And it means preferring others over ourselves at great cost to ourselves. This is the redemptive power of imaging God. It comes through suffering, and that's what communion is all about. When you take communion, you're not just hyperlinking back to Jesus on the cross for your sins. You are. You are. 
You are forgiven because of Jesus on the cross. But you're also hyperlinking forward to the life you're committing to live when you walk out of these doors. Oriented toward God, toward others, and to steward all the beautiful things that he's given you. And that is redemptive power. That has the power to change the world.